Autism spectrum disorders affect three different areas of an individual's life. Social interaction, communication, both nonverbal and verbal, and behaviors and interests. Social skills are defined as any skill facilitating interaction and communication with others. Social rules and relations are created, communicated, and changed in verbal and nonverbal ways. The process of learning such skills is called socialization. As a neurotypical person, socialization comes easy for us. For those diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, this is a significant struggle for them every day. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakowski, your host. And with me today is Carol Gray, the director of the Gray Center for Social Learning and Understanding. Carol develops social stories and comic strip conversation strategies that are used worldwide with children, adolescents, and adults with autism spectrum disorders. She has published several resources on topics related to children and adults with autism spectrum disorder, including articles on bullying, death and dying, and how to teach social understanding. Today we will be discussing social skills for individuals with ASD. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. So for our listening audience, could you give us a little bit of background on your professional experience? Sure. I began as a special education teacher with four children with classic autism several years ago, uh, around 1976 in a public school system in Michigan, and then uh, became a consultant to students uh, with autism later in my career. I worked for about 22 years in that public school system uh, and then began uh, working privately, uh, doing speaking engagements and writing. One of the things that I hear in, in many presentations, particularly from educators, is talking about theory of mind. If you could extrapolate on that for our audience. Theory of mind refers to the ability that you and I have to make guesses about what the people around us are thinking. And that ability brings a lot of meaning to communication. Uh, for example, someone you could be talking to someone and they could say, oh, you know what I mean. And interestingly, we do know what they mean, even if their words were not making any sense or were jumbled or they were struggling for what to say, we still know what they mean. Theory of mind is central to meaning and communication. It helps uh, children to identify the meaning behind a request that might be made by a parent or a teacher. And it happens so readily for people who are typical that we, I don't think we fully understand or appreciate the ramifications that that can have for a person on the autism spectrum where that information is not so readily available. So is that why you develop social stories? Was that the driving force behind that? Uh, actually, theory of mind was not the driving force behind the discovery of social stories. What happened with social stories was I had a conversation with a student, and through that conversation, uh, it became very apparent that the information that I had uh, about a situation uh, was likely to be somewhat different from the information that my students had. And recognizing that and recognizing that their perception of a situation was different than my own uh, led to the development of social stories where I felt we have a responsibility to figure out a way to address that challenge that they have so that we can share 
accurate information back and forth. So I guess one of the biggest questions is, how do you write a social story? Well, to learn how to write a social story uh, involves uh, some time and practice. Uh, Previous to uh, this point in time, uh, my answer to that would have been it requires attendance at a day-long workshop. But very soon we will have a app uh, coming out through Handhold Adaptive, and that social story app will allow people to, at their own pace, learn how to write a social story. Plus, there will be several sample stories that they can use as models as they uh, perfect the art and the science of writing a social story. Because it is a very special format, and it is one that requires a lot of practice. With a social story, it's not just what you say, but it's also how you say it that is so critically important. I've heard you speak a couple of times, and one of the things I found most interesting was that talking about perspective and putting yourself in the perspective of the individual. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, initially when I started talking about perspective taking, it was, as I look back, I realized it was at a very basic level that we have to understand that the information that we have may not be the information uh, that the child with autism has. And one of my earliest presentations along those lines was titled, Do You See What I See? And it talked about the fact that people on the autism spectrum may be working from a different perception and thus a different interpretation of what's going on, and that that might explain some of their very unique responses. In recent years... Uh, the last couple of years, I have realized that appreciating that difference in perception and perspective means that perhaps people who are typical can respond to people with autism differently. In other words, if somebody is viewing a situation in a non-traditional way, I believe that that holds implications for us that perhaps a more non-traditional response may be one that is more meaningful and more effective for them. And as a result, it's been a very interesting journey for me as I've grown in my ability to stop and think and realize that my first response may not be the best response to a person with ASD. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Carol Gray, the director of the Gray Center for Social Learning and Understanding. We're talking about social skills for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So to keep the conversation moving forward, Carol, uh, during your presentations, you also talk a lot about social context. Could you tell us what that is and how do you define it? When I first became interested in social context, it was at a period of time when I recognized that it wasn't just the words that we use in a conversation or the inflection or our gestures that held meaning, but also we are able to uh, derive a lot of meaning in interaction just in the context in which we are. And at a basic level, that would be when we walk into a library, we are suddenly quiet, we speak in a whisper, etc. 
In other words, the, the context that we are in uh, plays a significant role in communication. As I went to define social context, uh, I realized that each person is at the center of their own social context. In other words, we each have a slightly different perception of what's going on around us. And so you take that factor and add to it uh, the variety of cues that surround you that give you social and emotional information. And we each respond to context a little differently. And so as I look at a definition of social context, it's one that involves several elements, as well as our ability to simultaneously consider the most relevant factors in any situation and to respond accordingly. And amazingly, uh, the human brain allows us to do that quite effortlessly. So one of the things that I know you talked quite a bit about with regards to social context were the different elements, and you outlined six of them. Uh, could you take us through what those are and, and how you define them? The first one is place. We're talking about any setting, any context, whether it's a school or a home or a place of worship or a place in the community. Also included in place would be inanimate objects, their arrangement, uh, etc. Also, room temperature, the condition of the room. If we walk into a place and it seems very dirty, that's going to change how we interact and how we respond to that particular environment. So there are hundreds of factors that are simply related to place. The next one is people, and by that I mean groups of people and their arrangements. So any number of people greater than two that are in a given context. And we are always responding to the arrangement of a group so that how we respond in at one point in time may be very different than how we respond to somebody five minutes later, just depending upon how people have moved their position within a room. Uh, the easiest example would be uh, at a party. Uh, we're constantly engaging other conversation partners, et cetera, and moving from one place to another. And the number of people in that room definitely uh, determines how we're going to interact. The next one is person, and that's what each of us brings to the equation, whether you are a person who is typically social or if you are a person with autism is going to be one factor. And then there are several others, gender, age, et cetera, that determine how we interpret uh, everything that we see. And every person is at the center of their social context. And then purpose and predicament, the goals that we set and those uh, challenges that we may encounter in their pursuit. And we are setting goals all day long, and very interestingly, those goals help us to focus on the relevant social cues. For example, you may have experienced when you are looking for a dry cleaners, and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, there's one on the corner, and you've never seen it before, even though you've driven past that corner many, many times, because you weren't thinking about dry cleaners, you didn't notice it. When we set a goal, our brain focuses then on those factors that are relevant to the achievement of that goal. And we also have past, present, and future 
there really isn't an isolated present tense for us socially or emotionally. We're always responding to events and situations with influence or consideration of what we've done in the past and also prediction about what might happen next. So that if an adolescent wants the keys to the car, they know which parent to go to where they've had the best history of getting the keys to the car, and they're making a prediction about what that parent may say or do, uh, and hopefully they select the parent who will give them the favorable or the desired response. And then the last is pragmatics and communication, which is what most of us think about when we think about meaning and communication. We think about the words that people say, the gestures that they use, etc. And that definitely is a part, uh, but it's a part of social context, and it definitely is not the whole. So that's some great information. So another thing that you talk quite a bit about is paradigm change. How important is this to your work with individuals with ASD? I think it's very important to uh, approach all people with as an assumption-free uh, vantage point as possible. I think we are wired to make assumptions about people and events. I think our survival and our safety is linked to that. It helps us to identify uh, a person who may be dangerous, etc. But I think we need to recognize that that uh, same ability can really work against us when we are interacting with people as individuals and I think in terms of with all people, uh, working and responding to people without assumption and listening and watching carefully and gathering information uh, without any preconceived notion of what that person might be like is critically important and can lead to our most effective responses to that individual. I know after the tragedy at Sandy Hook, that you were reached out to to work on a project specifically around that incident. Could you tell us about that project? Yes. I was approached by the Autism Society of America, and uh, they asked if I would write a set of social stories to help people of all ages on the autism spectrum to understand violent events and as well, to, because the shooter in the Sandy Hook incident was a person with autism, to help people with autism understand that in no way does it mean that you are going to engage in violent behavior if you are a person with autism. And the project has led me to do a lot of research, and it led to some very interesting discoveries and a collection of stories that we refer to as the fingerprint collection. And I'm really looking forward to when those stories will be released to the public, um, absolutely free of charge, through the Autism Society of America. Well, thank you very much, Carol, for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking with Carol Gray, the director of the Gray Center for Social Learning and Understanding, and we've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.